0: grateful to be here. My name is Sharon and I'm an alcoholic. Through the grace of God, and because of my regular attendance at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, I haven't had to pick up a drink since the 24th of July, 1977. That's gonna seem even more amazing when I tell you my story. (laughs) I grew up in Romeo. When they announced where the Open Talk would be tomorrow night, that was the church where I spent my youth. I was there last year at their anniversary and at their Open Talk, and I sat in the place I've sat as a thousand times in that congregational church basement. Anyway, it's a little tiny town now, but it was an a bitsy town when I grew up there. I was born in the Second World War. My father was uh, a war hero. He came home to Romeo. They gave him a parade. And he quickly turned from the town hero to the town drunk. He, like both of his parents, died of alcoholism. My mother divorced him <laughs> when I was only three because she didn't want to be married to the town drunk. And my dad moved away and went to Warren, became a bigger town drunk. And um, <clears throat> so I was raised in a home without alcohol. And uh, raised in that congregational church. Grew up. Got married, moved to Rochester, had two little boys. Now, my parents had set perfect examples for me of what is alcoholism and what isn't alcoholism. But I didn't know it then. I didn't know it for many years until many years of my sobriety had gone by, the examples they had set for me. My father, I knew, was an alcoholic. About all I remember about my father is him being in jail and pleading with my mother to let him in because he would never do it again. And he always did it again. Now, when I was about 12 years old, my mother got drunk. My mother got drunk at an office Christmas party on Christmas. And it snowed and my mother had had a limp from polio as a child. And she had to crawl through the snow and up the stairs to get in the house. The next morning, my mother called up her mother, her sisters, and her best friend, and said to all of them, I got so drunk I had to crawl through the snow to get in the house. I will never get drunk again. She never did. She drank, but she never got drunk again. She would have a beer, half a beer. She would have a glass of wine, she had drinks with ice cream in them, uh, <laughs> but she never got drunk again because when she said, because when a social drinker says, I put myself in danger and I put myself in a place of embarrassment, I will never do that again, they don't do it again. So that's how I know I'm an alcoholic because I'm just like my daddy <laughs> when I said I'll never do it again. I'd do it again the next day. Anyway, I was married and living in Rochester, two little boys. And my life changed. The world was changing at that time. And we were both going to taking college classes at night. And my husband got a big promotion. And he he was also raised in a non-drinking home. And he said, "Sure, we now have to entertain the people I work with and go out with them. He said, these people drink wine. We don't know how to drink wine. Go find out how to drink wine. (laughs) So joined the Oakland County Oneological Society (laughs) to study wine, (laughs) and off I went to wine school. Well, when you send my daddy's daughter to wine school, It was like I was a freeze-dried alcoholic. You poured a bottle of wine on me, and there I was.
1: <laughs> so
0: I went to my store, and they said, we recommend this you know, white wine with this dinner, and we recommend this red wine with dinner, and everybody was ordering a case of each, and I ordered a case of each, and I started drinking every day with my dinner. And then like a friend of mine says, pretty soon I didn't need dinner. I just needed that wine. Like most alcoholics, there weren't consequences for me early in my drinking. I seemed to be able to drink more than anybody else with fewer consequences. And I thought, well, this is some kind of moral failing on their part. <laughs> you know, they have a few drinks, they're all goofy. I have two sips and I drive home.
1: <laughs> you know,
0: so I just thought I was somehow superior to them. And uh, I went on my merry way drinking. Like I said, we were going to college classes. Um, All of a sudden, I I was drinking. I was going out at night. I'd never gone out at night by myself before. I was going out at night to college. And after class, these people went to the bar. And I'd never been to the bar. And I went to the bar with drinks for them. So my whole world changed from being a seven-day-a-week housewife in Rochester to a woman that drank a woman that went out to bars with strangers and my marriage started deteriorating and I began to drink more and it really looked for a long time as if they, one was the cause of the other you know? but they were really just like parallel tracks. my drinking was getting worse because I was drinking more and my marriage was going its own way because we had gotten married so young and we were both growing up. And the people that grew up, we'd see seen people that got married when we were that young. So, um, <clears throat> I got divorced. And once my first husband was gone from my life, all restraints were off on my drinking. I could drink anytime, anywhere I wanted, with whomever I wanted. And I began to do that. And I thought it was me. I thought I was taking the drink, but I believe at this time that it was already the alcohol and it had taken me and was going to continue to take me on a downhill path until my recovery in 1977. I was, like I said, had been drinking for about a year with no consequences. Very shortly after that, I was arrested for drunk driving. And I was astounded. I didn't know that housewives from Rochester, mothers of two small children, I didn't know they put us in jail. I didn't know they handcuffed us. I didn't know they put us in the back of police cars. (laughs) I just didn't know this happened. I was astounded. I was embarrassed. I I never called any member of my family or friends. I just called my divorce attorney, and he told me what to do, and I got out of there. And I thought, no one will ever find out about that, and I'll never do it again. Um, But they say that your bottom is when you can't lower your standards faster than your behavior. And it turns out I just lowered my standards. Because of all the things that I can do in this world and all the things I'm good at, one of them is going to jail. See, when I have a drink and I encounter an officer the law in that uniform, I have attitude for some reason.
1: <laughs> it might
0: be some kind of problem with authority, I don't know. But anyway, I have attitude. <laughs> now, <laughs> how I'm so good at this position. Jail is when I'm drinking, and I see an officer at the law. It makes sense to me to make a re- reference to his relationship with his mother.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes sense
0: at the time. <laughs> so I went to jail for drunk driving. <laughs> I went to jail for drunk talking a lot. <laughs> I went to jail for drunk walking. And I went to jail once for driving a boat the wrong way on Pontiac Lake. I couldn't believe it. I'm out on the lake, case of beer, little dog. Woo! <laughs> it cannot be. <laughs> there was. <laughs> so, anyway, I went to jail a lot, but I was able to lower my standards and accept that. All kinds of behaviors that I had had all my life. The little girl that grew up in that congregational church was very chaste and very honest, and and I was very trustworthy. Before I started drinking, if I told you something or committed to something, what I told you would be true and what I committed to you would be done. And drinking changed all that. Now I was a woman that was getting drunk, going to jail, going to bars, and dating. And my whole life was changing so dramatically. And so I um, I kept on drinking, even though I was going to jail and I was wrecking cars. When I began drinking, I had a nice new car. <laughs> now, um, I think I wrecked that car three times. I think every part in that car was new except the engine and the interior because <laughs> insurance company kept just rebuilding the same car. And then I, I lost that car. And I went from having a nice new car to what I called my Kleenex cars, where I would get a car for $125. It would stop running. I would get out, take off the license plate, go to a car dealership, buy a car for 75 bucks, put that plate on, <laughs> drive that car. I'd either wreck it or it'd stop running, I'd take that plate off. <laughs> I'd run it to the next car. So I used cars like you use Kleenex, just buy them and throw them away. My car insurance was more than a car payment would have been, so, you know, that's what I did. That's how I lived my life. That's how I lived my life financially. I moved from apartment to apartment. I was always getting evicted because I wouldn't pay the rent because my drinking was more important than that. And my life deteriorated. I was going from job to job, apartment to apartment, man to man. And I was nothing like the person that I started drinking shortly before. But it made sense to me to continue drinking. One night I was getting ready to go to a party. I was all dressed up and I was having a few drinks because I was always afraid I would get to a party and there would be enough for you to drink but not enough for me so I always had to to have a few while I got dressed and then I had to have what I called my roadies in the car on my way there so I got all dressed up to go to the party and I'm driving along Rochester Road I only have one headlight okay I was driving with one eye (laughs) And an officer wanted to talk to me about my headlights. <laughs> well, you know, I have this problem with authority. So anyway, I went to jail. And I'm uh, all dressed up and ready to go to prison. So I went into a blackout. I went into a blackout from the time he arrested me until about 3 o'clock in the morning. I woke up and was sitting in a jail cell. And all of a sudden, I smiled. I was just tickled pink with myself. Because it had finally occurred to me, on the way getting ready to go to that party that night, what is my problem here? Am I going to drink enough to go to jail tonight? Because I hate going to jail. Mm, I hate it. I've only been in jail cell for a few hours at a time, but it just makes me nuts. So I thought if I do drink enough to go to jail tonight, what am I going to do? Stroke of genius. I'm going to put bail money in my pantyhose. That's what I'll do. (laughs) So I came out of a blackout. (laughs) I'm sitting there. And I called the matron, you know, running the cup against the bars like they do an old (laughs) And So I called the matron. And I said, I'd like to go home. (laughs) And she said, Sharon, it is just like the last time you were our guest when we were in old Oakland County Jail in downtown Tania. You are, I guess, now in New Oakland County Jail <laughs> on Telegraph Road. She said, "It this is the same thing. You can't get a cab. And you can't walk around the corner to someplace. She said, you should just stay here until tomorrow morning. I said, do I have bail money or don't I? Because at that time, you didn't have to keep your failure separate. If you had money, you walked. She said, yes, you do. But you aren't going to get a camp. Hmm. So I bailed out. And she was right. Couldn't get a cab to come and get me from Oh, nice! So I go out to Telegraph Road in the middle of the night, and I put out my thumb. Now Telegraph Road is huge. There should be lots of cars going both ways any time of night, but that night there wasn't. So there I was in my it was the 70s. Those was wearing hot pants, the go-go boots.
1: <laughs>
0: and there was one car on Telegraph Road, only one car with one man. And, uh, and he went by and he stopped and he backed up the car. He put down the window and he said, What are you doing? and I said, I am hitchhiking to Rochester (laughs) and he looked at me and he said you better get in before somebody comes along that would hurt you well, if you've ever met Henry he looks like the guy that would hurt you (laughs) no shirt, black vest, tattoos, chains out there like this and he get in the car with the door open so I got in the car and uh, Henry turned to me and he said uh, how did you get out here dressed like this <laughs> so I told him I live life in the best lane I like to party when you party like I do sometimes it catches up with you and you go to jail and that happened to me tonight. But I have figured that out. Tonight, I was carrying bail money in my panty hood. <laughs> I was tickled thinking myself. I thought he'd be in And the one man in the one car I on telegraphed about changing the name said, You see, what your problem is is you are an alcoholic. What you do about that is you stop drinking. How you do that is you go to AA like I do. One car on Telegraph Road and I get this crackpot.
1: (laughs) No luck,
0: no luck. (laughs) First the cop, now Henry, you know? So Henry, he takes me to Rochester. He gets my car out of Impong. He buys me breakfast. And he gives me a directory to AA and says, good luck. <laughs> Henry left, and I couldn't throw that directory away fast enough. <laughs> he had told me about the meetings and people and everything like that. I thought, I am so glad I am not that bad that I have to go to those meetings with other alcoholics sit around the church all the time.
1: Yeah.
0: Glad that's not my problem. Even though my mother and my father had made a perfect example for me, I couldn't see it at that time. So anyway, I kept on drinking. And I was going downhill fast. Really fast. And then the best day and the worst day of my life happened. And they were the same day. I went to pick up my children from my ex-husband. And they were gone. Uh, it was process over there with papers, and it, <clears throat> a judge in Oakland County had declared me an unfit mother and taken my children. <clears throat> and that is who I was. I was an unfit mother, and I am grateful to God that they took my children. But that day. I was not grateful. I was filled with the most extraordinary pain I've ever had. And I turned that into blame plenty. I blamed my daddy. I blamed my mother. I blamed society. I blamed my husband. It was all out there. i none not about was here. And so I was suffering terrible in this terrible, terrible world I was living in. The reason I tell you it was the best day of my life is because after I got sober, i sat with so many people whose children have died in their care when they were drinking or drugging. I have sat there and listened to mothers whose children died right next to them when they were too drunk to know. And so, but it took a while in, in uh, AA, and it took a while of hearing those stories before I became grateful that those children were taken away, placed with their father, where they're safe and sound, and I have two grown sons to die. But anyway, I didn't see it that way at that time, and I became <clears throat> deeper and deeper into this self-pity and blame-placing, looking at everybody else and not looking at me. Um, so what I did was I drank more to try and relieve the pain. Um, I'll tell the story because Georgie remembered it. I can't remember, I can't believe Georgie remembered it. (laughs) One night I was drinking at a bar in Rochester called Cooper's Arms. And, um, They had a little mini lobby in the back with a uh, phone booth, a uh, payphone against the wall. And about midnight, I went back to the, you uh, went outside the set of double doors, and then there was the phone, and then there was another set of double doors out of the building. And I went back there, and I called my girlfriend about midnight. And she said, I stopped talking within a couple minutes, but I was on the phone. She could hear people going by, people talking, all kinds of things. But I didn't respond. Well anyway, at 4 o'clock in the morning, I came out of a blackout, standing there holding the phone. And there was no one on the phone. It was just a dial phone. She said she hung up somewhere around 2 o'clock in the morning. And I hung up the phone, and I walked back in the bar, and there was no one there. And I said, very funny, come on out. So I thought everybody was hiding, <laughs> <laughs> trying to play joke on me. But then the bar was all cleaned up and deep and shiny and everything. And I walked through and I realized that I had been standing there at the payphone so silently that they had locked up the bar around me and not noticed me. And so I left the bar and I went to um, up the street to the Spartan Hotel and I checked in. And up until that time, I could blame a lot of what happened to me on my mommy and daddy and society and my husband and everything. But this was not the act of the same person. To be able to stand just out of communication with the world and yourself for four hours holding a phone to your ear in a blackout. There was no way I could make that normal. there was no way I could blame it in another person. So when I woke up that morning, I picked up the phone and I called Alcoholics Night. And um, I went to my first AA meeting at St. Andrew's Church in in Rochester. And um, Merle was there, and Carol was there, and... uh, Carl Myers was there and uh, they wanted to help me and Carl Myers had just gotten out of seven years in a Jackson prison for a, a drunk driving accident that had killed somebody and uh, as I started talking and telling my story his head kept going like this and I kept wanting him not to identify with me. <laughs> Because he had told his story. He killed people with his drunk driving. I mean, he did armed robberies when he was drunk. And everything. And, and uh, I just kept talking, hoping he would go like this. But he kept going like this. And I didn't want to be like these people. I didn't want to be there. I wanted them to say, oh, you know, come back later. You know, <laughs> with a drinking career or something. But they told me I, I was um, I was very lucky to get there at that time. And... and um, <coughs> And I didn't feel lucky, and I didn't want to be there. And so um, I went back to drinking. And then I came back when he got on, and, I, and uh, Carl would say to me, Sharon, you don't realize what kind of jeopardy you're in when you take a drink. You have to be here for a while and see people die for you and go to jail and prison for you. He said, because you just, don't, you just don't think you're in any danger, but you're in great jeopardy every time you pick up a drink. You just don't know it. And I remember he, he kept telling me that, and I kept thinking, why does he keep telling me that? <laughs> he doesn't know it. I can handle a few. But if I have one drink, the first sip of the first drink takes away what our, our literature calls the hot stove response. I have been burned and hurt here before. But I have one sip of one drink, and I forget that. And I'm willing to put my hand back there again. That's what separates my mom from my dad. She wasn't willing to go back there, and he was. So I continued to drink, and my life got much, much worse. I was going to jail. I I needed to find a way to make a living by drinking, so I became a bartender and I was going working from bar to bar and my life was just horrible just horrible but those first few drinks always made me think I was still having a party you know? and I could not see my way because I wouldn't get sober long enough to having a good time without a drink in my hand I just didn't think it was possible so I never did what people in AA told me to and my life got worse, and I became suicidal. Now, <clears throat> as good as I am at getting arrested, I'm that bad at suicide. You know, obviously, I'm bad at suicide. I'm standing here. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm really, really bad at suicide. <laughs> I remember one time I tried to kill myself, I got a bottle of Sleeping pill' with a whiskey. I drank all this whiskey. I had that entire bottle of Sleeping so The phone rang. I said, hello. They said, what you doing? I said, i oh, killing myself. <laughs> and so I got rescued. <laughs> I was always getting rescued when I tried to kill myself. So, <clears throat> one night, or uh, one morning, I woke up. It was in, in February. And we'd had a very warm winter. And my television was on. I'd passed out with the television on. And the news was on, and it was showing a, a camera it was down at the end of this little fishing pier. And it was showing the Detroit River had no ice on it. And it was going to be eight degrees below zero that day. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to wake up another morning like this. I'm going to go jump in that river. Nobody will rescue me from that river. It's too cold, you know. I'll get in there. I'll do it at night. Even if they get divers and shoots and lights, I'll be dead before they pull me out of there. So I decided I'm going to jump in that river so naturally I got up, got dressed, full makeup,
1: hot pants, go-go boots, leather
0: coat, matching leather gloves. (laughs) And and off I go to drink my way down Woodward Avenue. I'm (laughs) going to drink my way there. I started out at a bar, it used to be at uh, 19 uh, Square Lake in Woodward, called Ted's, and it's 19 miles to the river from there. It takes 12 hours to drink that bar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and
0: so, if to go to every bar, you know, and so I drank my way all the way down Woodward, <laughs> got there a little after midnight, I decided I'm not going to be rescued tonight. <laughs> no, sir, well, at that time, this was before there was the Renaissance Center. There was hardly anything on the riverside of, of uh, Jefferson. There was a big boulder with a plaque commemorating the founding of Detroit. And on the land side of Jefferson, it was it was just very dark. There was hardly anything there. A couple little bars, little tiny bars, I'd like something lights like on. But I went walking back up and down, Making sure nobody was there to rescue me that night, and I took out running. And I jumped in that Detroit River. And I saw my go go boots go in the water. And a man grabbed me around the throat and pulled me out. There was a mugger behind the boulder with the plaque commemorating the founding of Detroit. And. Uh, <laughs> I always expect I'll be doing one of these talks and this guy will go, ah, oh, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> it was eight degrees below zero. There was no one out there <laughs> except suicide attempters. You know? <laughs> and there he was, waiting to mark. You know? <laughs> anyway, we're both shaking like this because I could have as easily taken him in if he pulled me out. So we were pretty close to death and we were both shaking like this. So we went across the street for a little bar. And he, he pulled out this water cash, because he didn't even mugger, he'd cash. And he started buying us doubles. <laughs> Tossed out his doubles, trying to stop drinking. And I did what any refined woman would do. I went in and I climbed out through the bathroom window. Because I was going to jump in that river and die. But now I had a problem. I was drunk. I had river water in my go-go booth. I was starting to suffer from hypothermia. And I was in the completely black alley in the city of Detroit. And you had to find your way through through the real method. Now this is a creepy thing, people. <laughs> you don't know where you're going and you're drunk out of your mind and you're going swish swish So it took me a while to find my way through the alley, back to the river. But the mugger, he wasn't as drunk as I was, I guess. Because by the time I got back to the river, he had police cars with floodlights on the river. They were looking for me. And I thought, I'm not talking to those police tonight. I know what happens when I talk to
1: <laughs>
0: Not going to jail. So I started drinking my way back up Woodward Avenue. <laughs> and I drank all the way to Royal Oak. For closing and um, checked into the motel. And next morning, I woke up and looked in the mirror, and I, (laughs) I had all the symptoms of uh, a terrible hangover: dry pipes and bloodshot eyes and puffy and everything like that. But I had uh, my skin was peeling off my hands and my legs from the river, ice water, you know, and um, being so cold, and I had some kind of hypothermia shock. You see all the veins in my body. It was like I was covered with a purple spiderweb. And I was, it was pretty gruesome when I was looking in the mirror. And, um, and so I looked in the mirror and I said, I know what your problem is now. You're crazy. What's wrong with you? And they have places for crazy people, and I'm putting you there. So I drove out to Clinton Valley, which is where they put the crazy people at that time, right out next to the jail and I telegraph a and I went out to the people and go like, knocked on the door. Boom, boom, boom. They keep those places locked, you know. So anyway, this guy opens the door. Says yes. And I said, tried to kill myself last night. He said, "Well, come on in." Uh-huh. So I went in, and um, they immediately, immediately diagnosed my problem as lack of Valium. <laughs> and. Uh,
1: <laughs>
0: and nothing was considered addictive at this time, honest to God, uh, cocaine wasn't considered addictive. There were people walking around without half their nose, no it's not addictive, don't <laughs> you know. And Valium certainly wasn't considered addictive at the time. So they gave me a mayonnaise size jar of Valium
1: <laughs> and they said,
0: here. Uh, the only reason you'll come back here is because you don't take oh, a yeah. pill. My drug of choice is, is Seven Crown whiskey. So I had this told I said, "I'm supposed to take you. Where do you want to go?" <laughs> like, the bar. Me too. Let's go to the bar. And um, so I go to the bar and I pass out handfuls of them like Halloween. <laughs> People buy me glass of drinks, you know, I just thought it was wonderful. Three days later, I tried to kill myself back in, and, you know, Valium. Anyway, I stopped going there because they always had this same Valium answer, and that, thank, thank God, was not my answer. Um, <clears throat> so I would go there and I started going to treatment. I went to the treatment center three times, I was going in and out of AI, and my life got worse. <laughs> Honestly God, it kept getting worse. I just couldn't every time you get to a point you think it's not gonna get worse because it can't get worse. I'm gonna die. You know? It would get worse. It would get worse. There was one of the last years I drank, I decided to drink tequila. I've never had tequila before. I decided to drink tequila. And um <clears throat> Oh Lord, what that stuff did to me! Anyway, I had this girlfriend. She wanted me to give a Tupperware party, so I gave a Tupperware party, and and, and I start. I'm a bartender. I served margaritas. You know that's what I serve when you come to my house. And so I served uh, margaritas. I served a lot of margaritas in Tupperware. And three people from my Tupperware party went to jail. Uh,
1: it was amazing, you know. Uh, damn,
0: those Tupperware parties are dangerous. You know? <laughs> Couldn't believe it was you know. Tequila. <laughs> um, anyway, my life got worse. Started getting real sick from this alcoholism. Got a thing called peristies, which is where you get little ulcers on your esophagus, and every once in a while your blood pressure'll change and they'll start to bleed out on you all at once. You have projectile vomiting in blood, really and blood—really impressive. Black against the wall. And, um, it's a lot like exorcist, Your head spins around like that. The <laughs> anyway, I started losing large quantities of blood. And it takes you time to recover from something like that, and I never gave it any time. I just would always go back to drinking as soon as I possibly could. I got drunk, had to have some surgery, ended up, uh, didn't tell him I was a drinking person. Went into D.C. on the second day. Went into a coma. I was in coma for nine days. I I was in the hospital for weeks after that, and I went to stay with my aunt and uncle until I got better. And as soon as I got better, I got a job tending bar. So anyway, <clears throat> I knew I was an alcoholic. I didn't think there was any way for me to recover. I'd been to every kind of therapy. It was the 70s. Believe me, we had therapy. We had individual therapy, group therapy. We had transactional analysis. We had, we had every kind of therapy you can imagine. The 70s. I'd been to the mall. I'd been to AA meetings. I'd been in and out. And I had been to treatment centers and wards, detox, and the hospital. And now I was starting to turn yellow and I was filling up blood. And I had thought for years that I wanted to die. I wanted to die. Why can't I just get drunk some night and die? You know, that's what I kept thinking. That's the night I'm going to do it. And I never did. And so, in July of 1977, I knew I was going to die. I could feel it. I could feel my body shutting down. And I knew it was over. And all of a sudden, when it was recover or die, I wanted one more chance, just one. And so, I went to the hospital, and the doctor at Crittinson said, Sharon, we have been telling you for over a year, You've been your friends have been dragging you in here, you're going to die, and now there's nothing we can do, you're going to die. You've got about a week left, probably till 1st of August. So you can come in and we'll try and keep you comfortable. And every time they tried to help me before, I said, but I want to die. It's okay. And this time they said, you're going to die. And I said, I want to live. Because I'm just contrary. You can't please me. There's just nothing you can do. You know, I, I want to live. You know, they said, no, we've been telling you if you wanted to live, you had to quit. And so anyway, now I wanted to live, so I left the hospital because you know you can't tell me anything. And so I left the hospital and I went home and I called AA for I don't know how many times I called AA. I called AA and I was crying and this guy said, <coughs> "What's the matter?" And I said, "I'm going to die." And he said, mm, "We're all going to die." And that's true, we're all going to die. And I said, "I'm going to die this week." And he said, who told you that i to die this week? And I said, the doctors at Crittenden just told me I'm going to die this week. And he said, well, you know, doctors don't know everything. They don't. He said, you know, in AA, we give out miracles. We save people's lives. But in order for that to happen, you have to show up. So he said, where are you? I explained to him where I am. He said, this is absolutely amazing. Three blocks from where you are in one half hour is an AA meeting. I said, I know that. I've been here, it didn't work. He said, okay, let's try something different. I said, what? He said, we have to try something different. If we're going to save your life, and we only have a week, we have to try something different until we find what will save your life. So he said, write this down. And he sent me to this meeting, Christchurch, Cranbrook, in Bluefield Hills. And while I was driving down there, I thought about what he said. That I would have to try something different if I was going to save my life. That it couldn't be what I'd always done, because it would get me what I always got. And so I thought, what am I going to do that's different in this at this time? And I thought, I'm going to do what they tell me to do. I have never done that. I have gone in and done things my own way. I thought they were full of it, and I'd do it my own way. Thank you very much. So I thought I'm going to do what they tell me to do, and I'm going to learn from their stories, because I have never learned from their stories. I've gone out and lived their stories. And so I walked into this meeting, and they told me they were giving me an ambulance, and I said, no, I just came from the hospital. I'm not going back. So they sat me down and got me a cup of coffee. And I thought that was very nice. And so I had a little bit of coffee. And I threw up blood coffee on the table. And these people were from Bloomfield Hills. I parked my mighty $75 cupless between their Cadillacs and their town tires, you know? I had dressed in yellow, so you couldn't notice my skin was yellow. (laughs) And now I'm throwing a blood coffee on the table. So these people from Broomfield Hills who acted like, Pfft. everybody fills up blood on the table the first time. Here, don't worry about it. We'll just clean this up. <laughs> and they just acted like I was normal. And I'm sitting there talking just to this woman take takes her handkerchief out the of a person. She reaches over and goes like this on my face, and there's blood all over it. So anyway, they just treated me like I was just cleaning. normal. And this, and this guy says, Sharon, after the meeting, we're going out to coffee in Birmingham, would you like to talk They know what happens to me when I drink coffee.
1: <laughs> no
0: way they're going to meet me for coffee in Birmingham. But see, people in AA often asked me out for coffee before. <laughs> I never them. No way. I'm going out with lunch to coffee. I, yeah, I'll go. I'll go. Because that was something I'd never done before, see. So we went to Birmingham for coffee and then they said, Meet us tomorrow night, meet a here. Tell tell you work. Write this down. So I, I went the next night and they got me coffee. So I got drank some of the coffee and I ran into the bathroom and this time I made it in the bathroom before up threw up the blood and coffee. And the women followed me in there and held my hair back. And they cleaned off the blood off my face and we went back to the meeting. Thank you. So I um I'm not done, but they're leaving. That's what's <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> the third night we went for coffee in Birmingham, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and this guy was insisting I go for coffee. He ordered two poached eggs in a cup, and he's lifting them up like he would for a baby. And he's talking, 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 talking to people, and he can't sit here out. and open their mouths. And he fed me these uh, poached eggs. By a spoon because I couldn't have a fork because I would have hurt myself. It was pretty shaky. And and that night I saw it as what it was. That night when he fed me with a spoon, um, I don't know how long I had gone without eating, but it was a long time. And I apparently became obvious to me, I did not care enough to feed me. I didn't love me or like me well enough to feed me. And this, these people I had known for three days, this man, cared enough to buy me food and feed me like a baby. And it, so these people I would known for three days cared more about me than I did. And that was pretty amazing to me. And that was the night I found out what AA people are made of. They're made of love, hearing and compassion for their fellow alcoholics. And I didn't know to so call them. So I started to do what I was told. The man my sponsor today, John, he said uh, he was sober 13 years at that time. And I would go around to people and I'd say, how do you stay sober? If they had substantial sobriety, I'd just tug them their sleeve and say, how do you stay sober? And he said to me, I'll tell you how I stay sober. He said, I get on my knees in the morning and I pray for sobriety and I get on my knees at night and thank God for my sobriety. He said, cut me sober. for Two years. I said, Oh, I, Did I tell you I'm an atheist? He said, Did I
1: ask
0: you? <laughs> 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 he said, um, You know, you asked me how I stay sober. I told you how I took it. Now do it or do well, well, I decided I was going to do what I was told, so I'll go do this. So I would do this. I'd get on my knees and pray. A couple of weeks later, I went back to him and said, You know, I'm doing what you told me to do, but I don't believe in anything. He said, Then pray for faith. I said, okay, he's a tall man, you know? he's <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> you "Okay." Know? so I'd get on my knees and I'd say, could I please have a day of sobriety and could I have some faith, and then at night I'd say thank you for my sobriety and thank you very much for the faith, because <laughs> I did not have it, but you know what, I started seeing, not in my own life, even though I was a walking, talking miracle, even though I was supposed to be dead by then, I, I stopped throwing up blood. My skin color was turning back normal. I was, I just stopped shaking. Me. Mean, my whole life was changing radically. My body, especially, was changing. I didn't see it as a miracle because you can't see your own miracles right away. And so, I didn't see that, but I saw it in other people. I saw other people changing and getting better. I saw a power greater than themselves, helping other people. I prayed for faith, and I got it. And that is the mainstay of my life today is my faith. So anyway, I came into uh, AA. I got sober. I got a guide in my life. I began to do what I was told. I began to get results. And things began to change. The man who uh, I thought of as my big brother, even though we're not related, we were drinking buddies. And I was—he was so happy that I got sober. And when I was sober, he came by <coughs> and I, to check on me every once in a while. And I came home one night, and there was sitting on my front porch with a great big bottle of wine lying against my face—the front door, my favorite kind of wine, laying against the front door. And I I was separating myself from all my drinking people except him. He was my last friend, my last loved one from my drinking past. And because I really hadn't opened my heart that much to AA people, he seemed like my only friend in the world. But there he was sitting, and there was that bottle of wine. And I knew I had to make a choice. And so I had to say, hey, to my last friend in the world, just take that bottle of wine and go, and don't ever come back. And he said, I understand. And he did. And I'll tell you, it was so hard to do. He was my last friend in the world. And so I uh, went in the house. And that was the night I discovered my big blue sleeping pill, I call it. I was shaken like a leaf. I was terrified I'd cut myself off from what I thought was the last person I had in my life that loved me. And I thought, it feels so long, but it has to be right. And I must be able to find it in this book, the big blue book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I got that book and I got in bed. And I, uh, the reason I call it my big blue sleeping color is I found out if you get in bed with that book, either one of two things will happen. Either you will find your answer, you will be relieved, and you can lay down and go to sleep. Or you will become so incredibly bored
1: <laughs>
0: that you're going to sleep and you'll wake up with this book on your face and lying. With <laughs> but in either case, you go to sleep <laughs> if you take this book with you. So anyway, it took me like three nights of reading that book before I was content with that decision that that was the right thing to do. And so I got sober. When I was three months sober, I got my first son back. When I was six months sober, I was a uh, New Year's Eve, AA dinner dance, I'm oh, not so. And this guy from Austin Crossey dance floor, he's dancing, and he says, hey! You. Didn't I pick you up just I can there there's <was> Henry. with <laughs> Henry. So, anyway, I a couple for about a year and a half. This guy in the AA named Mike, he said, I've started a new meeting. On Saturday morning, she said, I wonder if you'd like to go to my new meeting with me and go out to lunch. I said, sure. So 10 days later, we got married.
1: <laughs> 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 and
0: um, and my son had, had come to live with me for a while and gotten back with his dad. So we got married and we had no kids. And I was always going to AA meetings trying. They said, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't be playing for the kids. And so we were married like a week and a half, and his two kids and my two kids. We had kids. We had kids, and I was back at AA meetings saying, I got so many kids. So I had all these kids. And we were married, and things went very well for quite a while and I loved him and I truly believe he loved me but he didn't love me or his kids as much as he loved drugs and so he began a downward path again and he had to use and he had to embezzle to buy those drugs and so he had to go to prison and uh, so I had to divorce him. I sit with so many people that are crying because they, they are going through a terrible divorce and they still so hate the person that they're divorcing. And I think, yeah, why don't you try it when you love that person you're <laughs> That's pain. So anyway, but I knew if I was going to go ahead with the plan I had for my life, which was alcohol free and drug free. And a constructive, happy, joyous, and free path. But I couldn't go with him anymore. And so I moved on. And um, it, was, it was awful for me and I had to go away to Florida and live there for a while. And I came back from Florida. And I met my dream darling, The love of my life. He is so good to me, and we are so happy together. Every couple weeks, we'll say, "Oh, you can't get any better than this." This is happiness. This is looking sad. <laughs> and so, Kathy and Roger and I just "It's not going to get any better than today. It can't be, because we nailed it today." <laughs> That's the best thing of my life. And then a couple weeks later, I say, "It's getting better, isn't it?" <laughs> because our life continues to get better. Anyway, um, today is kind of special to me because when I was uh, uh, 17, 17 or <coughs> 18 years sober, was, it's been the most difficult day or time of my life in sobriety was at 17, 18 years, when five people in my life died in 10 months and I was in three separate accidents. So I was always in casts and on you know, walkers and going to funerals. And it was just, it was horrendous, it was horrendous. And Jean Garland, he took such good care of me. All my friends took care of me. But Jean Garland, he would, um, for eight weeks, I was, they told me to keep my arm like this, eight weeks. And um, that was in his cast and stuff. And he would have to uh bathe me, and, uh, and you know how much a man loves you when he you shaved your armpits. <laughs> <laughs> it
1: what? put your
0: body lotion on some parts of you get more in the lotion than others but. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: i tell you, some parts you to sweat, you know so <laughs> 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 so so uh,
0: this past Friday, he had to have surgery on his arm, and this morning, I gave him the shower. And I tell you, um, it feels so good <laughs> to be able to take care of him. Yeah. <laughs> I tell ya, he's just a lot of fun to take care Anyway, it feels so good to be able to pay that path. Yeah. Anyway, I got uh, sober in this program, and I was able to pay the people back in the program. People began to ask me to buy them through um, When I was, uh, I think, seven years sober, I got a letter from uh, a friend of mine who had been married to my big brother, the man I call my big brother, definitely. she lives out in California. She said, I wonder if you could help Dick." He quit drinking and got mixed up with some kind of cult called Alcoholics Anonymous.
1: <laughs>
0: said, yeah, I can help Dick <laughs> now. And, um, so Dick came to Rochester and I was able to give my big brother a one-year token. And today he has, uh, I don't know, he's seen 19 years of sobriety, something like that. And, and um, <clears throat> now we have the internet and I have communication with him several times a week. and. He's a good friends with Jeans. They're both car crazed individuals and they're constantly emailing photographs of cars <laughs> back Anyway, I got my big brother back. I got my kids back. I got Henry back. I got my whole enchilada back. My whole friend. Plus, plus, they tell you if you could write down what you want the first day you come into Alcoholics Anonymous, you would cut yourself short. I didn't know this existed. I didn't know this kind of being happy, joyous and free existed until I went through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and worked these stuff and made changes in my life. So that I began to have better ways to cope with things than I've ever had before. Even though I was an adult, living in a responsible and adult life, uh, when I started drinking, I had a certain amount of maturity but I didn't have the coping skills and mechanisms that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous teaches us. At that time I could live with resentment, and it wouldn't kill me. Today I know resentments kill. I know that they destroy the vessel that contains them is what resentments do. I have seen it again and again. I have seen people come in here and refused to get, let go of something in their childhood or something in their drinking past or someone that did something that they didn't approve of and I have seen, drive them back out there to drinking and death and I don't want it to have as up to me so I have learned many skills in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous among the most valuable ones are opening my heart to friends and family and AI it's <clears throat> When Gene hurt his arm, uh, he tore a muscle in half. And the doctor, the surgeon, that was explaining it to me, he said that um, you have to have big muscles, like Gene does. You have to have, be really strong in order to tear the muscle in half. Because if you aren't, you couldn't lift enough weight to do that to the muscle. <laughs> so you have to be really strong in order to hurt self-defense. And I was sitting there while Jean was in surgery, and I was thinking about that. How you had to be really strong to hurt yourself that bad. And I thought, how strong my heart is, but how grown. I was able to hold so much more love and so many more people than it ever could before I got here and went through this program. Pretty much before I got sober throughout my whole life, I'd have one or two friends. That was it. That's all I could fit into my heart. That's as strong or as big as my heart was. Many years ago, Jean and I were giving a Valentine's Day party. We decided we'll have a big party. We'll invite all our family, all everybody we know, acquaintances. We're invite everybody to Mayette. we we'll have a big party. And so my mother, I invited my mother and she said, who's coming to your party? And I said, well, all of our families and their acquaintances and about a hundred of our closest friends. And she said, a hundred of your closest friends? How could you have a hundred close friends? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the to the partying will see. <laughs> and um, so anyway, that's what happens. If you strengthen your heart, it will get stronger than you can ever believe. It will hold more people. And more relationships than you could ever believe. And when it hurts and it breaks, it hurts worse than you could ever believe. And that's when you go look in your AA toolkit and figure out how to put your heart back together. It's easy. You got that big blue sleeping pill to go to bed at night. You have a friend in your telephone that you never had before. I used to have a phone for my pity parties. Now I have a phone to strengthen us. I have relationships with the people in the program and with my higher power that makes it easy to heal a So anyway, I am 26 years sober. When I was 25 years old, people kept saying to me, What do you know now? What do you know now? What do you know? This is you no. <laughs> just And I tell you, I learned how to suffer like a grown-up. I learned how to suffer and use the program and it steps and the people in this program and not to run back to a drink. Not to think about drinking. Not to act on my drinking. And not to drink. That's what this program is taught. It's amazing. People always listen to me open and talk and say, Oh, God, if you got sober, anybody can get sober. Well, that's true. You know? If I got sober, anybody can get sober. I'm so glad I got sober. That let me come here today and share with all of you. Happy New Year, everybody.